We've actually found that about a third of all performance reviews within companies contain bias, and 4% of the time that actually leads to lower performance ratings for women. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I'm speaking with Katika Roy, the CEO and founder of Pipeline Equity, which is a company working to eradicate gender inequity and bias. Katika's personal background is remarkable, and she has fascinating database perspectives on equal opportunity. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Katika, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's so great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Let us start with talking about your company, Pipeline. I would love it if you could describe what Pipeline does and what need you think it fills in the market. Absolutely. So Pipeline actually started with research. We did a research study across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, so gender plus race and ethnicity and age, there's a one to 2% increase in revenue. So we were really looking at the, essentially the microeconomic case for equity within companies. At the same time, what we also saw was that the 96% of CEOs were committed to equity, but only 22% of employees regularly saw that shared and measured. So you had this 74 point gap and how do we actually fill that gap? So that was the need that we were really looking to solve in the market was both changing the narrative from a social issue to an economic opportunity, but also enabling companies to essentially live their pledge or live their commitments on equity. So what Pipeline actually does is we're augmented decision making. So similar to Google Maps or Waze, we do the very same thing, but for companies, people decisions. So we essentially intercept decisions across the five pillars of talent, which are the five big buckets of decision-making across people. So you just referred to these five pillars of talent processes that many organizations have. Just can you go through what those five are? Sure. They are internal hiring, pay, performance, potential, and promotion. Run all those decisions through our system. And if we find any inequity, we make recommendations. And what that does is actually enable companies to move toward equity with each and every decision that they're making. It's so interesting that you found that companies had the stated intention of increasing equality, and yet they were falling short of that. And so many companies are putting a lot of effort into this these days. Why do you think they fall short? You know, they're trying so hard, but something's actually not translating into results. How do you think you're uncovering what those deep-seated issues are? That's a great question. And what's so interesting is that actually last year, there was 121% increase in the commitment. So in 2020, there was 121% increase in the commitment to equity. Some of that is the narrative around equity. You know, we have historically treated it as a social issue or the right thing to do rather than a business imperative. And if it's a social issue or the right thing to do, then the solutions that we look for are very different than if it's a business imperative. So historically, it's been viewed as things like a corporate extracurricular or a marketing campaign or a branding campaign or a complicated compliance issue. And so the solutions that we have to that are very different than looking at it as a business imperative, right? If you can improve your revenue by one to 2% for every 10% increase in equity, that's a significant lever to maximize shareholder value. And say more about those solutions, because what you're looking at across the board are all of the major people decisions that you could make, the hiring, the promotion, the pay. It doesn't get more fundamental than that. 
And so as companies are using your tool, what are the different solutions that they're putting into place along those processes? Yeah, absolutely. We like to call it a platform because we go across all five pillars of talent. But uh, you know, one of the things that we found is that you can't close the gender pay gap by starting with pay. And there's been a lot of talk about that. Obviously, the aggregate equal pay day for this year was on March 24th, which, by the way, was based on 2019 data. So we don't, we haven't yet calculated what that date will be for next year. But one of the things that we found is that pay is actually the symptom. It's not the disease. So in other words, pay is this quantitative value that you place on your talent. But the actual value happens before that in performance and potential. And we do equity across all decisions. But if we've got a company who's specifically interested in closing their pay gap, we actually don't start with pay. We start with performance and debiasing performance reviews, both in language as well as rating, ensuring that potential, so succession planning, is in fact equitable. And then we actually approach pay. But to give you an example of that, one of the things that we found through our implementations is that there are three key decisions that companies make across their talent each year, which is performance, potential, and pay. So for instance, for JP Morgan Chase, that's actually, you know, with 250,000 employees, that's 750,000 opportunities to move toward equity each and every year. That's what we make possible. And what we've actually found is that companies have catapulted forward in their journey toward equity by using the pipeline platform. On average, they actually improve their equity within their company by 67% in the first three months on the platform. And you're defining equity in that case as the pay outcomes or all those inputs? So the logic of the pipeline platform is we provide recommendations across those five pillars of talent. You accept those recommendations. We actually measure four KPIs. Those KPIs then actually tie into what is your equity score, which then ties to your economic outcomes. Pay is certainly one of those. But the other three measures that we look at are actually about opportunity and how you are set up for success in a company. So that includes things like how many resources do you have? What is your upward mobility relative to the different levels within an organization? What does that look like by different functions or different subsidiaries? And if you look at line versus staff, so quota carrying versus non-quota carrying, how does that actually break out from an intersectional gender equity perspective? So it's far more about equity of opportunity Mm -hmm. and actually measuring that, which is a historically has been a harder thing for folks to actually measure. And we actually make that possible and simple. But when you say that equity of opportunity, that feels like really egalitarian, meaning if you give everyone the same opportunity, that seems to be what we're all striving for versus some end result, right? Some people don't like targets. They don't like quotas. They don't like the end result we're striving for, but they might be a lot more open to creating equal opportunity because that actually implies everyone has a fair shot. So I really like that. You know, going back to how you think about those inputs, you know, that it's about the performance measures, not the outcome of pay. You know, I think about that for our company and we certainly do performance reviews, you know, twice a year. We look at high-performing talent. We think about succession planning. And I think, you know, you really have got the pulse on it because those are the things that managers put into the rating system and to your annual reviews. And therefore, 
what you get paid. So I think it's a great reminder, you know, for everyone to think about the pay is the outcome. It's all that stuff you're doing beforehand. And frankly, it's the feedback so that someone can perform better. And it's the right ongoing dialogue and coaching before the performance reviews that therefore you can focus on. You know, have you seen changes in managers' behavior and, and really mindsets when you present them data like this? We have. And one of the things that, you know, if you think about it right now, the system by default is not equitable. It is inequitable, right? So this will probably be familiar to you because J.B. Morgan Chase is a financial services company. But a few years ago, there was talk about low 401k savings rates. And what companies did was to auto-enroll new employees in 401k savings plans. And what happened was the savings rate went up. And the reason is that it's harder to unenroll in that than to to enroll. We've actually done the very same thing with the pipeline platform, which is a behavioral economics model. It is also how you can architect systems to change people's behavior, which is that when companies have the pipeline platform, they are by default equitable. So when you're making a recommendation and a manager is choosing to reject that recommendation, there may be a very valid reason to reject that. But now I'm choosing to be inequitable. That's a very different decision-making model than choosing to be equitable. So we have seen managers change their mindset around thinking about the decisions that they make. They also, some of that unconscious or implicit bias where they maybe are not aware, they actually become more aware, particularly through the natural language processing that we're using, as well as, um, we haven't talked as much about this, but we, in our hiring module, it's actually focused on internal hiring. It's about mobility within, lateral mobility within a company. And there's a fair amount of latent talent within organizations. Mm, Yes. Right. Meaning like we don't even know what our employees are necessarily good at or want to do unless they really explicitly tell us. Right. And then do they look like that? Right. That is either by job title or by the way that they look. Essentially, we create a skills profile when we onboard new customers. And for 86 on average, for 86% of all job requisitions that our customers post, we actually find five or more qualified internal candidates that can fill that position. So there's a fair amount of mobility and opportunity that actually exists for existing employees if you just look at them a little bit differently. And because people do not, employees don't have to apply for that position, we're actually proactively giving that to the talent acquisition team. And then they contact the employees to interview for those positions. That's a completely different model than actually trying to get more people to apply. Yes. And the fact is, if you're providing more mobility for your employees, you're increasing their satisfaction and reducing your costs of hiring outside. What data sources do you look at to make that kind of recommendation? Is it the performance reviews or is there some other foundational data? Yeah, it really depends on the company because it depends on what data they have about their employees. In order to create that skill set, we run it through our algorithms to ensure we've got an equitable set of reviews. That's one. The other could be their resume that's actually in the talent acquisition system or the ATS, the applicant tracking system, as well as another source of that data could be their job description. And let's talk about a little bit de-biasing our performance review. I think this is so critical and frankly, the source of so much bias that frankly does get through. When you look at them, are you looking at the words and the recommendations that managers are using to describe? candidates? And if so, you know, what to you jumps out as being a more biased review? 
So in performance reviews, there are two types of recommendations we provide. One is the actual language itself that's in the performance review. We call out bias phrases. And then the second is actually calibrating those ratings to ensure that they are applied equitably. So equitable performance, equitable rating. We've actually found that about a third of all performance reviews within companies contain bias. And 4% of the time that actually leads to lower performance ratings for women. It's funny, uh, a couple of years ago, I was actually in London at a Wall Street Journal Future Of session, and they had asked me to read a couple of performance reviews. One was male, one was female, not telling the audience just a few lines, you know, two, three sentences to see if people could tell. And I did that and everybody laughed because they could tell. And here's really the kind of two key things that we find. One is that women get far more commentary about their emotional state. So that could be disguised as communication or being aggressive. It could, you know, it, it is far more about their emotional state. The other piece that we found is that women are more likely to be rewarded for unpaid work at work. So there's a fair amount of talk about unpaid work at home, but that also exists in the workplace. So for instance, planning parties, or if you've got a value that's around celebration or fun, that can actually default more to women planning those parties than to men. The last thing that I'll, I'll tell you that we found, which is more specific to the culture of a company, is if a company has a word that describes somebody who emulates their culture. So for instance, if you worked for Google, and you were a Googler, that women are actually held accountable to demonstrating those values in order to get ahead. Men are not. It's great if they do, but it does not impact their opportunity. And that was a really interesting insight in terms of culture and the culture that we create and how that actually manifests differently for women versus men. Those are fascinating findings. When it comes to women getting those more emotional descriptors, do you see things like executive presence coming up in that? Is that a term that you think is a fairly used term? We haven't seen it as much in our data. That doesn't mean we won't, but we haven't yet. And I would, as a researcher, I would have a hypothesis that it does manifest differently for women versus men. And the reason why is that we look at, we tend to judge women based on their past performance and the past roles that they've had versus men. We tend to judge them on their future potential. Right. So when you're looking at executive presence, if we were to close our eyes and think about what does a CEO look like? What do we actually picture? You know, bias is how our brains work. It is, you know, that is my first master's degree is cognitive science and computer science, but essentially it's schema. They are patterns in our brain and then we attach new information. So if we close our eyes and believe that and picture a CEO and that's maybe a white guy who is in his, somewhere between his 50s and 60s, six foot tall, roughly, you know, <laughs> right? graying hair, <laughs> that, that's the issue. That's what I would tie, you know, as a hypothesis to executive presence. Well, that's the thing. I think that perceived ideal in your mind of what the leader looks like, the farther away you are from that ideal, i.e. female or person of color, the less you seem to have that executive presence. And so I've always really hated that term because that to me implies there is one style of leadership and ideal mm. when in fact, I think there's many styles and a range that we should look for. So this tool and what you've built are really important to helping us, you know, get to the new era, I think, of equality. 
how did you come to starting this company? would love to hear about you know, your background in the corporate sector and how your experience and your interest in this really led you to create Pipeline. I am the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. That had a huge and continues to have a huge impact on what I see in the world and what I believe is possible and what also I believe is my responsibility and duty. So I want to talk about that very quickly, but it is very much the fabric of who I am. My mom was born on Guernsey, which is one of the Channel Isles of Britain, and she was born in 1939, the year that World War II began. She was the youngest of five children, and in 1940, and when France fell to the German army, Prime Minister Churchill made the decision that he needed to evacuate the Channel Isles, of which Guernsey is one, and the first ships off were actually children, and my mom was separated from her four siblings. She was 18 months old. Her four siblings and her mother. She was actually on the last ship off of Guernsey as the Germans were coming up from the south. She was actually on a ship in the north, placed into an orphanage at that time were children's homes, and then adopted a year later. That experience... And her father in particular didn't believe that girls got an education beyond sort of a two years associate's degree, informed a lot of who she was. And when she was 21 and emancipated, she emigrated to the United States for opportunity and equality. That had a huge impact on me and what I believed was possible. The second piece of that is that I'm also the daughter of uh, and sister of refugees. So my father and three eldest sisters actually escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. Mm-hmm. And my three oldest sisters were three, seven, and eight. And my father decided that it was better to risk their lives in pursuit of freedom than to commit their futures to living under communist rule. And he, with the help of Hungarian freedom fighters, walked them across a minefield, crossed the border into Austria, where they lived in a refugee camp for just under two months when President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the U.S. on Christmas Day, 1956, and they were on that plane. Oh my goodness, your story is just making me shake. It is so powerful that both your mother and father had these unbelievably traumatic, life-disrupting experiences. That is remarkable. How did they meet each other? They met in Chicago. Yeah. And then they moved to California where I grew up. But this idea that one person in a position of power could make a tremendous impact. Like I am sitting here with you today and have the opportunity to start pipeline because one person in a position of power stood up and said, not on my watch, this will not happen. And that more than anything really had the impact of starting pipeline. 23 years of experience. I had two master's degrees. I had progressed pretty quickly in my career. I had a background in data science and human capital. I'm a former programmer, fluent in four languages, that I had the opportunity to both change the narrative, but also use my skills to make gender equity a reality in my lifetime. That was the really the return of the opportunity that had been provided to my family, that I could use that to then make sure that somebody else had that opportunity, but that I could actually make that happen. And that is probably the thing that, um, you know, there are people that I have never met and I will never meet who have been paid equitably, who have equity of opportunity because of the platform that I, along with my team created. That is really the basis for why I created Pipeline. I just love this story. I mean, your passion and your parents' experiences have really created you to do such great things for other people. So I just want to say thank you for that to really take all of that 
And I'm just curious, you know, growing up with parents like that, what did they tell you when you faced obstacles? What did they tell you when something didn't go your way? You know, how did they give you perspective knowing yeah. what they had been through? One is that the frame of reference for me anytime I'm facing something really difficult is my father's decision to escape. Because whatever I am facing just doesn't seem as difficult. And, and I'm a mom, I've got two kids, as that decision, you know, 2020 like for most people was a terrible year. And in addition to sort of all the things we know, my mom was diagnosed with cancer in December of 2019. We moved her to live with us in January, 2020. I mean, that is a total silver lining. And then we cared, she had terminal cancer. We cared for her until she passed away in August um, here at our house. Oh, and sorry. so, yeah, well, thank you. However, the way that it is sad, but I was also incredibly grateful that we had the opportunity to be able to care for her. So when I was going through that in 2020, my frame was, okay, this is the opportunity to care for her. And you know the decisions that my dad had to make were, were far harder. But the things that I was raised with as two principles, one is to always do your best no matter what. That like fear is not, you can have fear, but you walk right through it. And I, <laughs> I write lots of articles, you know, every time I write an article, I always, it's a, it's a vulnerable experience because you're putting your work out there to be consumed by other people and you just walk straight through it. So that was always do your best, no matter what. And the second was never give up. Mm. Giving up was just not an option. You just keep going. And I think those two things with the frame of my parents' experience gave me a sense of just even kilter. Mm. You know, you just get up and, you know, 2020, I just got up and did whatever I needed to do to get the work done. And regardless of what was happening. And I think that has been for me, a huge blessing in being able to frame what is currently happening. So there seems to be a real calmness and optimism that kind of pulls through your background and into your company now. Would you describe yourself in that way, sort of a steady person? Yeah, I am a pretty steady person and I'm very optimistic about what's possible because I am an example of what's possible. The thing I think about is my father going from risk, you know, essentially running for his life, risking his daughter's lives for freedom to watching them climb the stairs of Air Force One. In two months, that's what my dad did. Why would I not be optimistic about what is possible if we actually are willing to pursue it. The question isn't, one of the things we talk about at Pipeline, the question isn't if we can reach gender, intersectional gender equity. That is not the question. The question is, will we choose to? Mm, it yeah. is possible in our lifetime. We can take, you know, all of the trends, particularly the things that have happened in the last year where we've fallen back by so many, I mean, almost generations, right? Yeah. Um, that we have the opportunity at this moment to make that possible. I think we have to seize this moment. You know, as we speak, there's still one and a half million women who've dropped out of the workforce. Those numbers have come down, but of course, there's still way too many. And as you mentioned, you know, we have been set back decades in terms of women's representation in the labor market. So we're very concerned with that. You know, I'd love to go back to the moment you thought it was time for you to start Pipeline. You had been with many organizations, again, had a wonderful career, really varied in the things you were building. What was that point where you thought, okay, now it's time for me to take all that experience and, and do this on my own? So I was on a radio show for Game Changing Women. The topic was negotiation and pay. And the host asked us if we ever thought that the gender pay gap would be closed in our lifetime. And I said, well, not until we make it an economic issue. And then I thought I can solve that. <laughs> 
Absolutely. You came in with a problem and all of a sudden realized I have the solution. It was time. Yeah. And that really was that moment where I thought, oh my gosh. And then of course went to, you know, launch the company, do the research and build the platform. What happened before that though, informed that experience. And of course, those are the other two pieces of my story. I am the youngest of six kids, five girls, one boy. The legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the lived experience of my family. As the youngest by quite a number of years, I watched as my sisters and their families were negatively impacted by their lack of economic opportunity. So the things, for instance, that barred women from economic participation in my lifetime included the ability to get a business loan without a male cosigner, the ability to get a credit card without a male cosigner, the ability to rent an apartment without a male cosigner. All these things were actually legal in my lifetime. And I watched as they manifested in the lived experiences of my family. And as a little girl thought, I just never want to do that. The second piece, which is, I think, connected to that, is that I'm a breadwinner mom who fought to be paid equitably twice and won. Congratulations. It seems crazy to even say that to you, because of course, that's a battle you shouldn't even have to fight. And the first time I fought to be paid equitably, you know, I was on maternity leave with my daughter and my boss was optimized, which is a fancy word for fire. She was like, yeah, that's right. I think optimized for the organization. But anyway... So I was managing a team. The day after I got back from maternity leave, I was asked to take on a second team. And then two weeks later, a third team. And I thought, this is great. This is great opportunity. And then I went to HR and my new boss and said, how do you want to make me whole in my compensation? They didn't say anything. What I had also discovered was that my male colleague who was a pay grade higher than I was and had higher base compensation was also receiving additional compensation for that new team. And I got nothing. Mm. And so when I went to go ask them, I didn't get an answer. So I did research and I found the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And I called HR and said, this is a Lily Ledbetter issue. Every time you pay me, the statute of limitations starts over. What do you want to do about it? Good for you. Because I just... You know, for me, I understood that my economic opportunity was tied to the economic opportunity of my children. And if I didn't stand up, I was not only impacting me, but I was impacting my children. And what I also, and certainly like it's a story of success. They, you know, they, they raised my base pay. They gave me back pay. They gave me the additional level increase. But what I thought was, why did I have to do my research in order to be paid equitably? I was also then very committed to equity. I had already been, but like, you know, doubled down on equity for anyone who reported to me, equity of opportunity, equity of pay. And that really had an impact ultimately starting Pipeline as well, which was that I understood that the choices I made about the people who worked for me impacted not only them, but impacted other people, you know, typically their families, but you know, anyone who is connected to them. And so the impact that I could have was huge. And now that I've scaled that to the fact that there, like I said, are people I've never met who have more pay and more opportunity because of the platform we've created. I just love this fight in you, you know, that you were taking that forward and you just did it as a matter of course. You talked to your manager, you talked to HR. I think a lot of people in that situation, first of all, would be intimidated to have that conversation or second, think that they have to go get a lawyer or it has to be a big confrontation and a big fight and they're not up for that. How would you advise anyone, you know, who really thinks that they need to be compensated more fairly to go in and have those conversations, you know, in a very, in as calm a way as possible with the confidence. You can be passionate, but 
certainly ensuring even keel is important, right? The thing that I would say, I mean, I'm not a big advice giver, but what I would say is that bringing the data is really, really important. You know, I, I knew, for instance, that I was one level lower than my male colleague. I knew that he had higher base pay. And I also knew that he received additional compensation for the new team. None of the things that I had received. And I was also a top performer. So I had all of those pieces and then went to HR and said, okay, you know, what, what do you want to do here? You know, I think of being direct, having my research and my data ready were the things that really helped me to speak up. I also, and this is actually connected to my family history and also the branding of Pipeline, looking at equity through the lens of economics rather than simply as a social issue, which is that we tend to treat equity as binary. We tend to treat it as you're either for or against. And, you know, my family, my parents had suffered quite substantially because of that type of thinking, right? My mom was an orphan. My father was a refugee. And so, you know, equity is not binary. It is a continuum. We all stand somewhere on that continuum, right? And so understanding how to meet people where they are and bring them along is really important. And that's why bringing the data along about where we are and meeting people and then moving them forward is really important in moving this conversation forward. And I would say if you're going to talk, and again, I'm not a big advice giver, and we've created a platform that so hopefully employees don't have to have these conversations, but that if you were going to do something like that, understanding that you meet people where they are with the data and the data is irrefutable, and you move them along, it was in their interest to keep me at that company, right? There was not, there was no, you know, it was not in their interest to let me go for a myriad of reasons. You also remind me too, I think people feel like equality, equity is a zero sum game. So if if more fairness to one group, another group has to lose out because they might not get jobs or as as well compensated. When the reality is there's so much research demonstrating that it, it raises all boats, right? Because there's more, the pie is bigger, You've made more money with the diverse teams. And by the way, as you were raising, you don't want your good talent to walk out the door because it's costly to rehire them and it's terrible for morale. And so all of these add up to real benefits for everybody versus, you know, someone getting penalized. Ultimately, if you look at gender equity and intersectional gender equity through the economic lens, it's not just about women or people of color. It is actually about more opportunity for everyone. We've actually closed gaps for men and women. Like we're not a count your women app. Men, you know, we're, that's not what we do. We ensure equity for everyone because men can also be underpaid or younger or older workers can also be underpaid. We look at 120 intersections of data and ensure that everybody has equity of opportunity, men and women. It is great to hear that that is the outcome. So when you're starting to work with clients, Tell us about that process. You know, how do you, first of all, do you have to do a lot of convincing internally that maybe some folks don't believe what it is you'll do? And then, you know, how do you actually bring all this data together in a way that's user-friendly and can get to pretty quick results? When you implement the pipeline platform, what we do is understand how are all of those decisions made? For instance, what are all the ways that someone's pay can actually be changed? There are different companies have different approaches to that. Or for instance, for JP Morgan Chase, you do two rounds of performance reviews a year. What does that process look like? Is mid-year different than annual? And then we ensure that pipeline is actually embedded into all of those uh, decision-making processes so that we can ensure before the decisions are made 
that they're actually equitable. For instance, if you're if you're a manager and you're going to change somebody's pay, we will actually give you what the pipeline equitable range is so that you know that before you're making a pay change. And so you would use the company's own pay scale just to put that person in the context and say where they should fall. We use their actual pay, what their actual pay scale is versus the one that's assigned. The algorithms, the way they're structured, actually provide an equitable range for a cohort, but also uh, by employee. And so the times you've had to come back to companies with maybe some recommendations that were tough to hear, or maybe companies didn't want to follow them. Have there been just interesting reactions, surprising reactions, you know, any stories about someone saying that can't possibly be, or, you know, that you really had to do some convincing? The thing that we found early on, which is is actually a huge aha moment, was that that you can't close the gender pay gap by starting with pay. That surprised companies and managers. Well, it also surprised us. <laughs> I mean, that is, we learned that through the implementation. We we understood that we had, we knew the interconnectivity but then we understood that from an implementation perspective, right? And so that you actually had to align on the non-quantitative value of an employee, both in performance and potential, before you could actually get to any sort of pay recommendation. So let's talk about COVID for a bit and really what's come out of this past year. Uh, Remote work obviously is something that so many of us have been fortunate to do. And I think that remote work um, has been embraced by many companies and hopefully will be a part of their future workplace and guidelines. But you've written about remote work and how it actually might be harmful to women or other marginalized communities. So I'd love for you to talk about that. You know, what do you think the downside of remote work can be and what should we just watch out for going forward? We assume that remote work is flexible, which is not necessarily true. And we've assumed that flexible work gives women more opportunity, which has not panned out during the pandemic. What we saw was that women's unpaid labor increased by 153% during the pandemic. So that's the beginning. I've done many of those hours, but all the unpaid work meaning at home to the jobs that we're doing. Yeah. So you've got kids that are in remote school, that 32 years set back in labor force participation is actually critically important to our economy. This is not only an issue of fairness for women, but women have actually added $2 trillion to the US economy since 1970 through increasing their labor force participation. And pre-COVID, there was another $789 billion on the table for us in increasing the US GDP through increasing women's labor force participation. We've lost all of that opportunity, plus over a trillion dollars of economic gain since 1970, because we went back to 1988 levels. Mm -hmm. And then we also lost 22 years on the gender pay gap. So the constriction of that is really, really important from an economic perspective. There are really three key issues with remote work and equity. One is that women become more invisible. And if they are more invisible, they are less likely to be promoted. They're less likely to be thought of when we're actually thinking about who we are going to promote into the next level of management. The second is managers tend to undervalue employees that work remotely. That typically manifests in performance, which is really the anchor for a lot of uh, people decisions, and then potential. And then the third is 
you have to now speak up over Zoom. <laughs> it is an issue to be able to speak up for yourself anyway, but then in particular, this instance, you, you further marginalize people from actually having a voice. And so what we've actually found is that artificial intelligence, and in this case, augmented decision-making, can actually hardwire equity into the future work and actually make work more equitable. That is actually where we sit right now. We were faced with big problems last year, but also big opportunities. Yeah. And so how do we do that? You know, in your mind, what does a successful remote workplace look like? Can we work that in so that we do it fairly and we don't have some of those unintended consequences? We can actually ensure that everybody is valued equitably using a platform like Pipeline. And I would think then if more people take advantage of remote work, so more men do as well, then it further takes that bias out and the stigma out. And we really need men as well to use these benefits. Gender equity isn't a synonym for women's rights, that men are half the conversation and women are the other half the conversation. And not only because men hold the majority of leadership roles in companies, but actually because gender inequity impacts men too. 48% of working dads would like to stay home with their kids, but they can't. And the reason is sort of this idea of what we believe it means to be a man in our society, identity and isolation. Who will I be and who will I connect with? We have the opportunity to make that more inclusive. And I will tell you that my family has lived that for the last 13 years. My husband is a stay-at-home dad and has been. And I've seen that journey for him of, yes, it's the right thing to do. And the struggle of really reckoning how you do that when there aren't a lot of stay-at-home dads. I think there's 29,000 in all the entire state of Colorado of you know a population of five plus million. So it's a very small number. So where do you see us going in the future in terms of gender diversity in the workforce? What makes you the most optimistic? The ability to eradicate bias at scale, to ensure equity at scale using artificial intelligence, using cloud computing. That's what makes me optimistic, that this is now an economic imperative, that that is actually how we're focusing on it, which is actually how we've always should have done it, but now we are doing it and we can harness those technologies. Well, Katika, I have to say thank you for being here and speaking about these things. You have such a singular talent in the way you've brought together the skills, the analytics, building this platform with such a powerful mission and a personal drive. I mean, I, I just love how this has all come together for you. And I really hope so many companies adopt your technology and use these tools going forward. So thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining my conversation with Katika Roy. I was so intrigued by her insights and so inspired by her life story. Pipeline is directly expanding opportunity for women in the workplace, and I'm looking forward to following its work in the future. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.